America's got money problems, inflation, out-of-control debt and spending, and it's only getting worse. But there's hope. Solving America's money problems, one hour at a time. It's time for Good Money with Tho Bishop. Welcome back to Good Money here on Money Talk 1010. This is Tho Bishop of the Mises Institute. If you're interested in more content like this show, you can find us at MISES.org. And we've got a special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. If you would like a uh, very nice, in-your-hand uh, magazine covering some of the most important financial and economic topics uh, in the U.S. and abroad, um, you can get a free subscription to the Austrian magazine, uh, the publication of the Mises Institute delivered to your doorstep every other month at Mises.org slash magazine. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash magazine. The issue I have right now, our most recent one, uh, talks about the road to a single world fiat currency by uh, German economist Thorsten Pollitt, as well as quantitative easing to infinity and beyond uh, by Mr. Robert Arrow. Um, we've got some great content prepared for our upcoming issue. Again, if you're like the content on this show or this channel, I think you'll very much enjoy it. Again, a free subscription at Mises.org slash magazine. Someone who is a subscriber to the Austrian magazine is my friend Ryan Griggs of Griggs Capital Strategies, someone who, whose work I really enjoy, um, someone who can take the, the Austrian lens of the Mises Institute of economists like Ludwig von Mises and, and Murray Rothbard and apply it into understanding the, the current financial environment. Um, really recommend checking out his work and his services. We're going to be talking more about that. But Ryan, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, brother. Good to talk to you, though. Long time no talk, so good to reconnect. Yeah, yeah. Well, glad, glad to have you on. And so, so Ryan, um, most of our listeners here, they, they are, are not um, necessarily giant Austrian nerds. They haven't uh, private read uh, the, the, the human action or some of the, the 800-page books that we, uh, that we sell at the Mises Institute. Um, but someone who, who doesn't simply uh, read these, uh, these important economic treatises, someone who is not simply confined to, to teaching in an uh, uh, Ivy Tower a college position, but someone who's actually a practitioner trying to understand this. Um, can we start just by you explaining how Austrian economics has helped inform uh, your work in trying to serve your customers in the chaotic, overly politicized economic environment that we have right now? Wow. Yeah. Big question. <laughs> uh, and of course they're not reading human action. These people have lives. <laughs> <laughs> They're out uh, enjoying time with family and working hard. So yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot to dive. I mean, the you could spend a lifetime on the Mises.org website and still uh, only get through a fraction of what's available there. Uh, why is that Austrian economics helpful in my business? I mean, I think Austrian economics is helpful in any kind of uh, I don't know of any sort of work, but any sort of uh, framework that wants to address the market or try to understand finance because it's grounded in reality. You know, uh, if you meant, if once you get past the question of whether Austrian economics has to do with the economics of the country of Austria, 
um, and, and get into the fact that it, it's really just this collection of ideas that sort of hang together that can be traced back to great writers who happen to be of Austrian descent. Uh, once you get to that point, uh, you can start to get into, you know, people talk about their own experiences with economics and school or in college. And it's typically universally negative. No one has a positive experience. Uh, to talk about, generally speaking, high school or their college economics exposure. Uh, and that's because a lot of it is was not Austrian. It was sort of this, uh, neo, what we call a neoclassical, very mathematical, very abstract, very stylized view of economics where you're working out equations and you're drawing lines on a graph, budget constraints and indifference curves and tangency points and a whole bunch of pre-calculus sort of uh, laundered with the language of economics. And that's really what Austrian economics is not, right? Austri the Austrian view takes a much more human-centric approach. You know, you mentioned Ludwig von Mises, the main progenitor of Austrian economics in the 20th century. His main book was called Human Action. It's very human-centric. You know, in my business, I work with individuals of all sorts, people who have ordinary W-2 type jobs, independent contractor, 1099 income, uh, all sorts of business people who might take a K-1, for instance, uh, and, and all of them to some degree act what we would say entrepreneurially. They're making decisions uh, in the context of uncertainty with an uncertain future. You mentioned the volatile economic environment. My goodness, I mean, there's uncertainty all over the place. Uh, the the, the Austrian-style economic framework helps situate the individual conceptually, intellectually, in the context of all this volatility. Uh, you know, my, my specialty, my sort of area of particular interest has to do with things like the business cycle and capital theory and what capital is and uh, how an understanding of capital, how an improved, more nuanced understanding of capital might help somebody navigate the business cycle. Uh, you know, this idea of, you know, me being in business, it's a financial practice. I, I talk with clients about uh, various financial, personal, strategic topics. And so the business cycle comes up, whereas uh, in the conventional financial advisory industry, it often doesn't, you know, you we're told by conventional finance people that, uh, you know, it's not timing the market, it's time in market, just ride out those downturns, you know, keep your money in the market, keep invested in, and I'm not against investing. In fact, I don't even do investing, but I like to examine the underlying logic supporting those kinds of claims. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is conventional finance doesn't address the business cycle very well. Uh, they sort of black box the answer. And I think the reason is because they have a poor, generally speaking, poor economic perspective on, on markets. And Austrian economics can help solve that. So I know that was kind of a shotgun response, so, but that's what came to mind in how Austrian economics uh, apply to my world. Let's dive into that a little bit more because one of the things out there, so I, you know, I think the Austrian perspective provides different um, uh, justifications, ju different understandings for why different market phenomenon uh, happen. Um, and so, you know, you, you mentioned business cycles. Mm -hmm. You know, Austrians argue that you know we, we understand that it is um, you know the the 
way that uh, uh, increases of the money supply and, and, and monetary policy, the way that they fuel these business cycles, whereas you know other schools of thought like uh, you know, John Maynard Keynes and then others, you know, talk about animal spirits and kind of the psychological dynamic there. One of so so two different phenomenon, both can be observed, but two different explanations for that and how you handle that both as an investor or as a policymaker are shaped by those rationalizations. One of the the big warning signs, and I know it's a topic that that you and uh, Dr. Bob Murphy have touched on, is the warning side of a inverted yield curve. Um, I, I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal mm -hmm. earlier this week that the yield curve inversion is now the longest since the 1980s. Um, and and you had a, a academic paper um, talking about how an Austrian understanding of why a yield curve signals a recession is different than the mainstream view. Um, for our listeners that kind of help illustrate this difference in perspective, can you touch a little bit upon your work there and and what that you know what what goes into that signal that is one of the big warning signs out there for investors or anyone trying to to understand this environment? Sure. Yeah, it's a big topic, but we'll see if we can hit some of the high points. <laughs> we have this idea of an inverted yield curve. You know, we're talking about the yield on on treasury bonds of varying durations, right? So ordinarily, the yield on a what we would call a, a relatively long dated or longer duration treasury bond, something like a 10 year treasury bond. Ordinarily, that yield is a higher number than is the yield for a short dated treasury bond, say, for instance, a three month treasury bill. Right. The idea being that if invest for a longer duration, we want to receive a greater return because if we invest for shorter durations, we get access to the money to go and do something else with it. Right. Uh, a longer duration implies some a uh, relatively greater degree of uh, lack of access to capital, lack of use, and so should pay higher in terms of yield. So ordinarily, a non-inverted yield curve would imply a yield uh, on, a, on a longer dated treasury bond that's higher than that of a shorter dated treasury bond. And, you know, you can talk about yield curves, individual particular curves, where you're tracking the yield on these different bonds on different graphs. When we refer to the yield curve, we're typically taking the yield on, for instance, the 10-year treasury, and we're then subtracting the yield on the shorted uh, uh, treasury bill. And the difference then between those two yields is what gets mapped on a given graph. And that would be then the yield curve. And so a ordinary or uninverted yield curve is one where that difference is positive, right? The higher ostensibly ordinary 10-year yield is greater than the yield on the short-dated bill, and so the difference is positive, and so the line typically runs above the zero bound on an ordinary XY plane. If we, though, talk about an inverted yield curve where the yield on the three-month bill is, uh, or the short-dated is greater than the yield on the longer-dated instrument, then we might, this inverted yield curve, if mapped in this difference fashion that I've just talked about, will show a line that's running negative. And if you go to, uh, for instance, the Federal Reserve, the St. Louis Federal Reserve has a data tool called FRED, F-R-E-D. You can go and look up information like this and create graphs yourself. I put one together where you can tell the system, look, take the, ten, take the yield on the 10-year, back out the yield on the three-month, and show me the difference, right? And I mentioned those two in particular, the 10-year and the three-month, because there are different yield curves, right? On CNBC and 
other news programs, they talk a lot about the 10-year and the two-year, for instance, right? So yield on a 10-year Treasury bond versus yield on a two-year Treasury bond. Um, in the academic literature, the best predictor of recession, going back to World War II, is in particular the difference of the yields on the 10-year Treasury bond and the three-month Treasury bill traded in the secondary market. So we talk about the difference between the 10-year and the three-month secondary. And if you look at that line, you can see, as you just mentioned, that it is extremely negative. I have it up here on my side. The April 2023 reading is negative 1.46, and that is the deepest yield curve inversion since May, looks like May, June of 1981, to be particular about it. So over 40 years since we've had a yield curve inversion this dramatic. And the Austrian view here is that the reason this is happening is because of the contracting of the money supply. The uh, conventional Austrian approaches often look at, at the level of the money supply, right? The money supply is the, a combination of various things that either are money per se or that act like money. Right, things like checking account deposits and so on. In any case, uh, we often look in conventional Austrian view at the at the money supply. Is is the money supply increasing or is it is it decreasing? Well, the reality is that we're getting more and more money virtually all the time, except for the last few months. Really, uh, the money supply has just been increasing uh, virtually forever <laughs> in recorded history. In this since at least they'll say the founding of the Federal Reserve, right? So in recent history, uh, the work that I've done with Bob that you mentioned stressed the idea that really what might matter more is the acceleration or the rate at which the money supply is either increasing or decreasing. And to get to the punchline here, we have in recent history uh, both a absolute deflation, meaning a absolute contraction, a shrinkage of the money supply, uh, and a shrinkage at an accelerating pace, right? So this is a, a extremely contractionary. It produces this rather sharp uh, yield curve inversion. You know, the underlying idea here is that Federal Reserve monetary policy particularly affects the short end of the yield curve meaning the yield on these various, very short dated instruments. And so when you have very dramatic uh, monetary policy, like we've had over the past year, uh, year or so under Jay Powell's Federal Reserve, uh, what's, mo- what's most affected, relatively speaking, is the yield on these short dated instruments. And so this contractionary activity has really put a lot of upward pressure on these short dated bonds. And that's what's caused this short dated end of the, of the yield curve, let's say, the yields on these things like a three month treasury bond to go up above the 10 year. And the reason that that is statistically predictive of recession is because it's an indication that the free money trough is being taken away from these zombie companies that have lived for 15 years now on essentially free counterfeit funds. I say counterfeit because we know that the Federal Reserve and commercial banks have a legal charter to create money out of thin air, which if you or I did would be called counterfeiting. (laughs) So I talk about it in plain English, but uh, that trough is being taken away, or at least the flow of water is being reversed 
right? Uh, and so a lot of these companies that have cropped up and survived or have um, bolstered their balance sheets or their cash flow statements over the past 15 years on this funny money, this sort of counter legally counterfeited increasing flow of new fake money, uh, that's being reversed. And we're in the process of that reversal now. It's what's led in part to some of the recent bank failures we've talked about or we've seen. Uh, but the process is ongoing. We're in the middle of it now. Uh, last point, ordinarily, in the, going back since World War II, uh, formal National Bureau of Economic Research, or NBER, identified recessions start in the aftermath of a yield curve inversion. So one would expect a recession right now, although that may well be the case. It's, this, isn't a, this isn't an apodictic law. It's not necessarily the case that recession may come after but statistically tends to be the case that formally identified recessions happen in the wake of a yield curve inversion, which may give us an idea about what's upcoming in the next 12 to 24 months. And then as you mentioned, you know, part of the lead up here has been zombie companies. It has been what Austrians call malinvestment. It has been the redirection of finite resources into means of production that, that are not serving ultimately a consumer wants, you know, the, the market response is there, um, but instead is a byproduct of this. And this is another thing that, um, and we'll talk on the other side of the break about some ways that um, our, our listeners could perhaps um, better navigate this. But, but for the Osprey perspective, the recession is the inevitable uh, uh, fixing of that dangerous boom period. This is Good Money here on Money Talk 1010. Stay on the other side of the break. We'll continue our conversation with Ryan Griggs. Welcome back to Good Money. This is Stowe Bishop coming to you on this Thursday morning here on Money Talk 1010. If you are interested in uh, learning more about uh, what has government done to our money, how to think like a Austrian economist um, to better navigate this world, we have a special deal for you. If you go to Mises.org, that's M-I-S-E-S.org slash good. We have a special $5 deal for two important books, How to Think About the Economy from Dr. Per Bylan and What Has Government Done to Our Money by Mary Rothbard. These are great short reads. Good for you. Great for a student that might be going off to college soon. Get them before they get uh, 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 indoctrinated uh, on, on worse economic <laughs> ideas out there. Um, if you use the promo code GOODMONEY at checkout, the shipping and handling is covered to make it a flat $5. That is at Mises.org slash good. Someone who is very familiar with what has government done to our money is our guest for today. It is Ryan Griggs of Griggs Capital Strategies. You can also find him on Twitter at uh, Ryan D. Griggs. That's Griggs with two Gs. Um, I, I saw you recently had a, a Twitter spat with uh, Stephanie Kelton of MMP fame. <laughs> so that was a nice little, little prop up there. Um, but, but Ryan, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the services that uh, Griggs Capital Strategy uh, uh, kind of uh, specializes? I know it's uh, uh, infinite banking. I know it's something that um, uh, uh, Dr. Bob Murphy has talked about a bit. Um, Nelson Nash, um, one of the great leaders within that, uh, how to be your own banker, I believe, was his, his major uh, – his, his, one of the big books out there on it. Um, you know, on, on your website – 
you mentioned that the uh, the conven- conventional uh, financial paradigm teaches dependency on Wall Street and commercial banks. It leverages wildly complex regulatory regulations, tax codes, and engineered financial assets to confuse, discourage, and disappoint the individual. What is the alternative to this con- conventional financial paradigm that you guys offer? Dang, that was some good copy. I wonder who wrote that. <laughs> um, yeah, Nelson Nash is the founder, the creator of an idea called the infinite banking concept that was first introduced to the world in written form in the year 2000 in a book called Becoming Your Own Banker. And it's it's contrarian finance. Uh, from an economic perspective, I call the infinite banking concept a uh, a, a capitalization strategy a method for the optimal uh, accumulation and deployment of capital. I mentioned earlier that the conventional financial advisory world really fails in one respect because of their, their lack of theoretically informed answer to address the business cycle. Uh, we have a fractional reserve banking monetary system, a monetary system based on the fabrication, the creation of counterfeit funds, Uh, And changes in the rate of counterfeiting, essentially, uh, on a national, if not global scale, causes these booms and busts. And so every every so often, every five to ten years, the time since the last one has been a bit longer, we had a little little interruption called COVID uh, and the, the monetary response to it that sort of changed up the rhythm here. But generally speaking, every five to ten years, we have these booms and busts and the value of what we call market correlated assets, things invested in public casinos, which we also call the stock market, uh, take a kick in the teeth every now and then. Uh, and the, the industry has, has a, the financial advisory industry term for this. It's called sequence of returns risk, uh, which means that uh, is essentially the idea that one, uh, one might outlive one's money late in life. Right, so we talk about the idea of retirement planning, pr- providing for a late life cash flow, uh, and this idea that there's not going to be sufficient accumulated value late in life to provide distributions required uh, to to match up with one's actual mortality. This is the, the the idea that the the sequence of returns that that fund or that that investment enjoys will be insufficient to provide for necessary distributions late in life and. The business cycle is a big problem here because if we've got these recessions and depressions that occur every so often that come with these acute market corrections, these steep drop-offs in the value of market-correlated assets, well, you know, it's it's a black box. It's completely certain. We have no idea whether whether or when uh, there will be one of these major corrections late in life that could affect the accumulated value that we seek to live on. For the, for the rest of our life. And this is just one problem with the conventional financial industry, right? It, it, it's really quite investment obsessed. Uh, it, it, it really dwells on how you give up control of your money to other people. You know, the, the, the Wall Street financial advisory world is run on a compensation model called assets under management. Your assets under their management, right? Your capital under their control. The infinite banking concept is the opposite of that. Uh, it's not to say that one couldn't also go invest. In fact, we would, I would argue, Nelson argued, Nelson Nash, creator of IBC, would have argued that there's a relationship between the amount of capital 
vehicle under your control, the amount of money you can get to at any point in time, and the type of economic landscape, the opportunity landscape that you face. Like there's a there's a causal relationship there. I would argue that the more money you can get to, the more capital you have access to and control over, then the more uh, improved, the more transformed, the more beneficial the landscape opportunity will be to you. If you're walking around knowing you can get to 5, 10, 15, 20, a lifetime's worth of your systematic savings and do so in a fashion that doesn't reduce the principal value of the, of those funds, that doesn't uh, – that accessing those funds does not require liquidation, does not require sacrificing future growth, well, then the opportunities you face are going to look a lot different. Uh, and, and, and this is what I mean when I say that the conventional financial advisory industry dwells obsessively on investment, on, on you giving access to and control over your money. They don't address uh, what is really the main problem I see in personal finance, which is, which is for the individual to get access to money that they need, both for opportunities as I've discussed, but also to finance the things they're gonna finance anyway. Automobiles, vacations, homes, medications, you name it, right? These, these are all different uses for capital. And the infinite banking concept explicitly addresses that need. Americans, because we're taught and conditioned by Wall Street, are obsessed with how quick we're paddling the boat, right? Yet we clean over the gaping holes in the bottom of that boat, right? The paddling, the rate at which we're paddling, that's your investment rate of return. We care about how fast we're paddling, but those gaping holes in the bottom of the boat, that's what Nelson would have referred to as the massive volume, the massive quantity of dollars paid to conventional lenders. You know, if you look at an an amortization table for a mortgage, for instance, the amount of money we pay to these lenders is atrocious. And it's high in other types of lending arrangements too, other types of conventional arrangements, like with automobiles. Well, the infinite banking concept addresses this front on and proposes the use of a particularly designed, strategically purchased, dividend-paying, whole-life insurance contract that's built to, for optimal capital accumulation. And these contracts are very unique. They've got uh, what we call a policy loan feature, which gives the individual policy owner the contractual right to borrow from the life insurance company, collateralized by the policy, to use for what they want, when they want, to repay if and when they want. Right? It puts the policy owner, it puts the individual in a position of extremely firm, private, contractual control. And this is a type of uh, economic circumstance that most people never find themselves in because we're not trained, we weren't taught to seek out positions of extremely firm, private, contractual control. We're taught to be dependent. We're taught to be dependent upon the bankers who provide the credit, all of which was created out of thin air. Uh, and then we're taught to fork over whatever little meager savings we might scrape up along the way to the Wall Street cartel. 
And it's no wonder. We then, then we wake up and look around and wonder why it's so difficult to transcend economic class boundaries in this country. Well, maybe it's because it's got something to do with how much capital we have ownership and control over. And the infinite banking concept, as far as I know, is the only financial strategy out that deliberately looks honestly and soberly at that problem, at the problem of getting access to and control over capital to finance the things one's going to finance and anyway, and to put one in a position to take care of opportunities should, should they come along. Uh, so that's in short what the IBC is, but I really recommend people go to Nelson's book, Becoming Your Own Banker, to get the, the full, uh, you know, full message direct from the source. It's only 92 pages long. You can read it in a weekend. It's written for the lay person. Nelson was a big believer in bottom-up thinking. Uh, he doesn't talk down to people. He doesn't rely on arguments from authority. It's written in logical, plain English that anybody can get to. In fact, my clients are required to read it first. And we really press education and the value of education in my, in my practice. Uh, and so I really point people directly to the source. You should always go to the source when starting something new. Um, but yeah, that's the, I think that's the long and the short of the infinite banking concept. Well, I, I do love your your slogan on your site, a place where clients become capitalists. And I, I think that uh, you know the yes, point sir. that you mentioned is is just the the, the degree to which um, you know the, the the current sort of of, of paradigm, right? It, it really does breed a a culture of of dependence uh, upon others, a, a a notion that you cannot understand what is going on, and therefore. You know, you, you need to be kind of a passive bystander in all of this. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I think particularly in, in times like this, um, you know, where I think one of the biggest demands that we're going to see in the short term, given all of the, the insanity going on, um, is a flight to some semblance of, of safety. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's some, some, some confidence. I mean, that's the, the number one question that I'm, I'm asked, you know, from, you know, people around here, you know, whether it's... Uh, uh, everyone from from realtors and and professionals trying to understand you know that the housing market and this side of things to you know servers at our some of our restaurants trying to figure out how they can better protect themselves in the future um you know so a, a sense of of security and control and self reliance is something that is is dreadfully lacking in this country we're in the final segment here on the good money show with though bishop i am the aforementioned though bishop of the mises institute m i s e s dot org and if you're interested in any of the topics that we address here on this show, you can find a whole lot more at Mises.org. Um, we got some great articles on the front page right now, um, including an article on uh, the Bud Light boycott and clueless corporate executives. We have uh, stuff on the uh, three lies they're telling you about the debt ceiling, how market self-correction corrected during the 1819 and 1921 recessions and some of the lessons from there. Um, a whole lot of material on top of a huge library of free ebooks, audiobooks, podcasts, short form videos, all everything that you could ever want if you want to go down the rabbit hole of Austrian economics. And we're going to end this show though with Ryan Griggs of Griggs Capital Strategy, who has been our guest today. And Ryan, um, you know, I, I think one of the interesting dynamics of, you know, since you know, we've been in a um, in an area of monetary excess for so long where Stock market go up, housing prices go up. Um, you know that has created, I think, a false 
assumption. I mean, I remember peak COVID, right, where you've got everyone transitions from sports gambling to day trading. Um, you know, there's this notion that it's so easy to invest and the extent to which that has been fueled by policy decisions. We're going to be in a period of a time of a lot more difficult, um, uh, a far more difficult environment where, where the, some of those returns are going to be harder to come from. Can you just talk a little bit as we end the show? What, what makes the uh, how, what, what protects uh, investors, uh, th- those clients of yours, um, using the infinite banking concept um, as an alternative to this sort of Fed fueled stock market frenzy, um, you know, housing market craziness that we've seen uh, over the past, uh, you know, 10, 12 plus years? Yeah, I referred earlier to the idea that the infinite banking concept is a capitalization strategy, and I distinguish that from an investment strategy. Purchasing, giving, and paying whole life is not investing. Right? My clients are, are life insurance consumers. They're not investors. They may also be investors in other capacities, but they're not investors in the sense of which we might talk in the conventional financial planning world. So you know, I, and when you invest, you give up control and use of money to that party in whom you're investing, and they go and use it. Uh, with capitalizing, the idea is to secure recipient control over capital for your own access, right? There's this fundamental material distinction between capitalization and investing. Uh, the infinite banking concept just says that the reality of the fact, the, the reality is that we've got, everyone's got a need for capital, whether it's to finance the things that you're purchasing anyway, or whether it's to provide for a future cash flow. These are like in the future, like in the context of retirement planning, these are just different needs for capital. The infinite banking concept acknowledges that and says that you, the individual, should be the one owning and controlling that function, right? Rather than relying on whatever sort of conventional financial actor one might rely upon. You know, Nelson would point out that banking is a business. The the provision of credit and the control over the repayments of credit, that's a business. The movement of money through loans and loan repayments is a business. And that business generates profit that you don't participate in, right? These banks are businesses. They they generate a financial surplus and it's distributed in dividends to whomever owns those banks. And it's probably not you, right? Nelson says with the infinite banking concept and dividend paying whole life, what we do is put ourselves in that position of ownership, right? These policies pay dividends by being a, an owner of a dividend paying whole life policy from a mutual insurance company of a contractual right to receive a dividend. In other words, you participate in the generation of financial surplus from an entity that does in form, in essence, the same sorts of things as conventional financial uh, companies like banks do. If insurance companies are not banks, we get it, but they provide loans and they, uh, control loan repayments or they receive loan repayments. Of course, they also provide death benefits, but they're also engaged in this lending process. When life insurance companies collect a whole lot of premiums, they got to go out and deploy those funds, right? And one way they do it is in the form of loans to policy owners. So there's a lot of similarities, uh, certainly some key distinctions, but uh, many similarities between how life insurance companies operate and how banks operate. And the product of the life insurance industry, the dividend paying whole life contract, just confers a lot of contractual control to the individual. 
But we mentioned earlier before the break this idea of, of certainty, of a flight to safety. Uh, dividend-paying whole life, and particularly cash value, the, the value of a dividend-paying whole life contract, is the, it's the only financial asset where the value is guaranteed, guaranteed by these firms, many of which have existed for over 100 consecutive years and have paid positive dividends for every one of those years to their policy owners. Right, the life insurance, the mutual life insurance corner of the financial world is an extremely secure, uh, extremely safe part of the, of the, the financial strategy spectrum. And, and it used to be, prior to World War II, used to be the place where many Americans saved and stored their capital. Well, and that is exactly the sort of historical perspective you can get at Griggs Capital Strategies. That is GriggsCapitalStrategies.com to learn more. This has been Good Money on this Thursday morning. Join us next week here on Money Talk 1010.